Now, following our second place finish in Iowa, we've prayed and deliberated on the way forward. If there was anything I could do to produce a favorable outcome, more campaign stops, more interviews, I would do it. But I can't ask our supporters to volunteer their time and donate their resources if we don't have a clear path to victory. Accordingly, I am today suspending my campaign. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. Just a catch of strays over here. <laughs> You're in for a hell of a show. Keep the faith, hold the line, and own the lids. It's time for our main event. Welcome back to the Ruthless Variety program. And then there were two, fellas. Then there were two. Yeah. Yeah, we lost a, a candidate in the presidential race, and we've lost a, a co-host on today's episode. Smug's not here. No, Smug is I, I, what I imagine is the next iteration of COVID. Yeah. I mean, I think they're still, right? It's well, still... yeah, there's that saying that uh, the states are the laboratories of democracy. And, <laughs> and the... Smug is the laboratories of COVID. Yeah, that's right. We yeah. know this. When he went over to Egypt. He got uh, the OG. He got the OG. He brought it back here. Yeah. And then he cooked up uh, the Delta variant. Yeah, and I think he had Omni. He had, he had Omicron. Yeah, I think he had it all. Yeah. So this is whatever he's working on now is what we've got. It's what's coming next to a uh, to a classroom wherever your kids go. <laughs> 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 on Main Street, local credit unions and community banks are the heart of our small towns. So when these institutions are united in opposition to the Durban Marshall credit card bill, Congress should listen. The Durbin-Marshall credit card bill favors corporate megastores like Walmart and Target, shifting costs and risks unfairly onto the credit unions, community banks, and the 135 million customers they serve. Tell Congress to protect America's credit unions and community banks and oppose the Durbin-Marshall credit card bill. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org to take action. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, we wish him well and welcome him back, hopefully, uh, for Thursday's program. Mm-hmm. Uh, fellas, the presidential race has gotten extremely heated up, and we're going to talk about the obvious DeSantis departure and what that all means, but first, everybody have a nice weekend. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. Snow on the ground here in our nation's capital, which is a fan favorite in our household. Everybody was outside for most of the weekend, playing in the snow and doing their thing. I mean... Is that right? Like a, a nice, uh... What, 15, 20 degrees? You guys just get out there. And- well, kids don't seem to notice it. You know, I, I feel like I notice it more and more every year. But, but my kids have been, like, itching for this moment where there's snow on the ground and they can enjoy it for a long time. So they, they weren't going to miss out. I, oh, man, I, I couldn't help but notice you were on your porch uh, watching football, making yeah. snowballs. I was. For your children. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I worked out a pretty good scheme where... I just took a like a giant bucket, and then I sat outside and and watched the game, and then just made snowballs, uh, all game, and then just passed them off <laughs> to my son who loves throwing them at the brick wall. So, Is that right? Yeah. And that worked. That bought you a game? Uh, not the whole game, but uh, it got me through the first half. Is that right? Yeah. Huh. Well, my wife went to a uh, birthday party where she was matched up in tennis against my ex-girlfriend. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> what, a, what a weekend. So that went awesome. Real blast from the past. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. It was great. I'm glad I had to deal with that. Yeah. That's exactly what you look for when you're like, hey, man, 
I'd like to put my feet up this week and relax from a, you know, we worked pretty hard last week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big week. And uh, and that's the kind of stuff I love to deal with yeah. on the weekends. Yeah, great so. way to relax. <laughs> Get ready for the next Monday. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right, so you heard off the top uh, Ron DeSantis's uh, concession, which was a two-camera YouTube dealie where he talked about uh, the path forward and that he's not going to be a part of suspending his campaign. I think it's interesting vernacular that everybody suspends everything. Mm-hmm. They don't end anything ever. Everything's always suspended. You think you could restart? No, I just, you know, it's an interesting deal, right? It's an interesting, there's a choice made when you're writing words mm-hmm. to suspend. Now he endorsed Donald Trump. And so I suspect uh, that that is a permanent deal, but you suspend rather than end, which is, you know, it's a choice. Yeah, I mean, I feel like everybody does that these days. I know, but I, w- I wonder why. I'm not, I'm not saying that there's, like, ulterior motives here in terms of what he's, ch- he's trying to do. I just noticed that, that it's always, when any, anybody quits these days, it's a suspension. Yeah, and it's just, it's just sort of accepted by the press that that's what they say, and there's no, like, paragraph that says, whoa, he's doing this to preserve the opportunity that if something should happen to the president, then... And, like, maybe they'll say that, like, well, you suspend things because you've got FEC work to do yeah. and, and winding down campaign Which committees. Which is the, and, that's the legal reason to and, do it. And I think that may be the case, but mm-hmm. it is interesting, mm-hmm. right? I don't know. Well, I, I, anyway, that leaves just Nikki Haley. Mm-hmm. And Donald Trump. And as you're listening to this uh, tonight, there will be results in the New Hampshire primary, uh, the number two race behind Iowa. And I looked for a while like this thing was going to be a real nail biter. And it seems to have spread out post Iowa. We're going to get into all of that and more. We've got uh, polls. We've got uh, discussion of campaigns. We've got some variety. Mm hmm. In this program? Yes. Love, love variety. We got all kinds of different stuff. So, you, listen, you're going to have fun. You're going to have a lot of fun. But let's start with the, the DeSantis piece. There are an awful lot of you who are listening who had very high hopes mm-hmm. for this situation, including, I think, us, because at least me, uh, and I think I'm speaking for both of you, um, have been and continue to be big fans of Ron DeSantis. think he is an incredible governor. I think he's done a really good job and thought – coming out of his 2022 re-election by record margins in Florida, that he was going to be an incredibly formidable opponent. And as of one year ago today, he was a front-runner in Republican primary. Yeah. And that went from front-runner status to the by, by the time he announced, basically, down 20 and never really recovered. Um, a lot of reasons for that, fellas. Yeah, I, I, um, I read a couple of the autopsies of this whole thing. And I think the one quote that, that stood out to me was one uh, DeSantis uh, consultant uh, saying that they had to be lucky and perfect yeah. in order to pull this thing off, and they were neither. <laughs> um, they were unlucky in that um, Donald Trump was indicted, uh, I think, there in, in March. Yeah, the, and, the Bragg <clears throat> indictment, first of all, being the most... right contemptible indictment of them all and that was the first to go yeah and then and then there were you know the cascading other indictments and you if you all you got to do is look at the aggregate of the the polling over that period of time and see how the gulf widens between donald trump and ron DeSantis. i have to assume reflected in those 
the you know voters rallying around Donald Trump. So they weren't lucky. Yep. They weren't all. They also weren't perfect, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's obvious um, that there were some missteps in that campaign and, and some of the organization uh, around around the campaign. I you know I don't know how strongly correlated the second part is to the ultimate outcome. You know, I th- I I think the indictments were probably predominant, but certainly there were missteps that didn't help. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, look, I think a big part of that, in order to have a campaign that is capable of winning a presidential election, it is not just about having a candidate that can get it over the finish line. Mm-hmm. It's also about having a cohesion within the team where everybody knows, they don't think, they know that they're on a mission, they're not doing a job. Mm-hmm. And I think there were some problems right at the outset with that. I think that the whole idea of a shadow campaign with the super PAC Mm -hmm. that was basically running the campaign until Ron DeSantis got through his legislative session and ultimately announced for president was a real disconnect. Part of that's legal and that you can't communicate with your super PAC. And so ultimately if those people are going to be running a campaign on your behalf and you have no control over it, like that's a tricky situation. It's made worse when it's not a perfect fit. Mm -hmm. And I never felt like it was a perfect fit. They made some some personnel moves, some changes from where the governor was in 2022 that it just – a lot of observations have been made about how they ran it. A lot of people castigated, a lot of people trying to play defense about it. But I think we can all agree it wasn't a perfect fit. And what happened ultimately when he launched his presidential campaign is that there was the money side that was running the infrastructure behind the entire campaign – and then there was Ron DeSantis and Casey and their operation. And there seemed to be a widening disconnect between the two as we went along. I'm comfortable in saying, I think Ron DeSantis, had he entered the race as he left it, mm-hmm. would have been a much more formidable candidate than he ultimately ended up being because I think he was a damn good candidate by the end of it. I think at the beginning of it, the helter-skelter start, the weird sort of Twitter spaces start mm-hmm. of it all uh, was a good indication that this was going to be a little bit of more of a disconnected campaign than what we saw out of the, ultimately out of Donald Trump's and then, you know, Nikki Haley. You have thoughts? Well, um, you know, what sticks in my mind is a conversation that I had with my little sister at the very outset of Ron DeSantis's run for president. She lives in Orlando, and she was like, I really hope this guy doesn't win his primary for president because I really like him as the governor of our state. You don't state. think people actually think that? I do. I well, do. I mean, I, people in I, Florida probably I do. do. Well, the people like, in they Florida. they weren't voting in this. No, 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 no. Right, exactly. Well, she, I mean, she, she actually texted me, and she was like, who am I going to vote for now? He was the con- true conservative. I really liked him. I really wanted it. But my point is, he has done a tremendous job in the, in the state of Florida. And there are so many people in the state who are like, How, what are we going to do if he's not our governor anymore? Who's going to be the governor? And I think that there, there are a lot of reasons to believe that Ron DeSantis is, you know, I don't know if he's going to be the VP. I don't know what role he, like, there's a lot of reasons to believe he's going to be competitive in 28, right? I yeah. mean, oh, yeah. you know, he's, he lessons learned from the 24 cycle. And that's what uh, usually happens. It, if you look at all the nominees in previous years up till Trump, it was always somebody who had finished sort of 
somewhere in the top tier of the previous election. And they had built up nationwide name ID and a network and everything else where they could compete. I mean, yep. think about John McCain, Mitt Romney. You know, George W. Bush was an anomaly because his dad was president. Right. But if, if you're somebody from Florida who loves the idea of a guy who's sticking up for you every single day, you're somebody who's like, man, this is this is actually pretty good that we get to keep him as our governor for a couple more years. And then maybe he can be president in 2028. Yeah. I, I think that, um, you know, every there have been so much ink spilled on all of the reasons why he didn't he didn't win you know never back down was a disappointment of course and i'm gonna get shit from all the ron DeSantis people for criticizing him and i think that that is a sign of an unhealthy organization you know why because donald trump was going to win this thing from the day that alvin bragg said oh you're indicted for something you didn't do and you know what everybody's like the system is against Trump. Trump is against the system. Trump speaks for me. I'm going to stick up for Trump. It galvanized people around Trump. It had nothing to do with Ron DeSantis. So, like, the idea that you attack people for supporting Trump or supporting some other candidate over your candidate, I get it. That's the way politics works. The point is, I think DeSantis will be back. And my hope is that he's back with a much more effective team than he was this time around. You agree with that? Uh, I, I think there's another layer to it as well from a strategy perspective. You know, I don't think you can run a successful primary came, campaign trying to get to the right of Donald Trump on issues. Because I, I, I think in, in poll after poll, if you, you know, see what the uh, voters say about, you know, candidates that share my values and things like that, there's a disconnect in the Republican primary universe right now. I mean, Donald Trump won a majority of evangelicals in Iowa, mm-hmm. right, over Ron DeSantis, who was endorsed yeah, right, by right. the evangelical leaders in Iowa, right? right. <clears throat> you know, sort of the opposite of 2016, in which Ted Cruz sort of, like, swept that, that cohort of the electorate. Um, and he did try to run to the right of Donald Trump, and and that's authentic to, to Ron DeSantis. If you look at the guy's record, he's obviously a very strong conservative. But, you know, that's the, diffi- the difficult asymmetry in, in trying to fight Donald Trump in a primary is you can be to his right. You can be correct, but not get the credit for that. And so as a strategy, knowing you can't, you have to make a different argument. And I feel like Ron DeSantis in the last month of this campaign did it did that yeah but it was a little bit too late unfortunately yeah Yeah, well i think you you you've said this before and we've done look you look back on our shows when he got into the race and how we would have sort of saw that strategy Mm -hmm. but i think you said something uh pointing at one point which is there's never actually been a republican nominee who's been the quote-unquote true conservative from a policy perspective Mm -hmm. There just hasn't. No. And if you look back on all of the candidates who have tried to claim that mantle, Mm -hmm. whether it's Ted Cruz in 2016 or like a Newt Gingrich in 2012 or whether it was Jack Kemp, Jack Kemp or or Phil Graham. Yeah. I mean, you can go back as far as the eye can see. It's never that. Mm -hmm. And yet that is consistently a lane that strategists line out as to what they want to stake in, which I guess works if you're like a 16-person field where personality doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. That is the biggest chunk of a, of a conservative primary electorate, for sure. But it's more than that. And one of the things that we've said right from the beginning of the DeSantis campaign is 
when you were polling at like 44, 42 over Donald Trump in February of 2023, what does that look like? Like what, what, what makes up that 44%? A good portion of that is obviously the 50% that have still not come on board that didn't vote for Donald Trump in the Iowa caucus and presumably many of whom will not vote that way in the New Hampshire primary. And what do they look like? Mm-hmm. And part of it is the true, your true quote unquote conservative. Mm-hmm. And other people are, are, are just people that don't like Donald Trump. Yeah. They just don't like the personality of Donald Trump. They, for whatever reason, they've got objections with the post 2020 election behavior. They've got objections with all kinds of things. And, there was never a move to try to consolidate that latter part. The true conservative part, he always had a codlock on. And by the way, you know what it looks like? The 21% that he came home with in Iowa. Yeah. That's what it looks like. It's the same. What did Ted Cruz have? Like 24? A 27, I think, ultimately. But it's yeah, in the I neighborhood. Mean, it's in the neighborhood, yeah. Right? So it's basically the same thing. And then where do all those other people go? They, they ended up in Nikki Haley camp. Right. But that was only Nikki Haley entered the race at two percent. Mm-hmm. Like that, they, those voters weren't even available to Nikki Nikki Haley mm-hmm. until somebody gave them up, mm-hmm. and they never really made this broader play to the Republican electorate to try to consolidate a mano a mano. They kept saying it. This is a two person race. They mm-hmm. said it over and over. And now that's Nikki's message. It happens to be true now, but they kept saying it, but they never actually went after it. And there was never until, like you said, late fall, a real contrast that was driven between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. And like if you talk to them along the way, they'll say is that, you know, we're the only person that can eat into that Trump base. They're right about that. We're the only person who has, you know, massive favorability amongst the super conservative side of the electorate. They're right about that. But they didn't look at the available voters who are going to show up on election day or could show up on election day and calculate a strategy that way. They also, like, just at a much more basic level, they allowed Trump to define them without trying to define Trump, which is kind of what, which is kind of what you were getting at uh, earlier about how they waited too long to start attacking him. It really is about using your bully pulpit to define your opponent. What did Donald Trump do the entire time that Ron DeSantis was running against him? He said that this, he, he like accused DeSantis of supporting Fauci. He was Fauci's greatest supporter. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he didn't do enough. On, he shut his state down during COVID. He, all of these things that Trump knew intrinsically were strengths of DeSantis. He went out and he beat him over the head with it over and over and over again. And DeSantis didn't do anything. Including including uh, the nickname Ron DeSanctimonious, which I think we have some some audio of. I love. I mean, this is Trump. This is classic Trump. Let's play that audio. Okay. He just said, "Will I be using the name Ron DeSanctimonious?" I said, "That name is officially retired." <laughs> so I mean, look, he, he gets over. He's in general election mode. Well, yeah. Yeah. Retiring the name, uh, but but I mean just just to just to go back to the point that I was making about how Trump defined him before 
Ron defined Trump. Like if he came out of the gate and defined Trump with the vulnerabilities that Trump knew he had, and which is why he was attacking DeSantis on that subject, then we could have we could have had a very different race all mm-hmm. along. We could have had a very different race. But it's one of, it's one of the strengths that Trump has. It's one of the, it's not, but it's not just Trump that has this strength. Winning campaigns have the strength that they define their opponent early in a way that's memorable and believable to voters, and they don't let off of it. Well, they almost it, it was almost as if the early part of the DeSantis campaign was playing not to lose rather than to win. And that's that's a that's a recipe for disaster. But I think prevent I, defense in the first quarter. I mean, Donald Trump was playing prevent defense too here, though. I mean, guy refused to get on a debate stage. But I, I agree that DeSantis. But he also had a forty point lead by the yeah, time. I, they, I, I understand. I know. understand. But uh, I guess what I'm saying is like. I don't. I don't think it was just uh, Donald Trump saying, you know, oh, uh, DeSantis shut down Florida, which of course he said it over like and over and over laugh, again. Laughable. It's that. It is. It's it's that ultimately at the end of the day, people wanted to defend Donald Trump. They didn't. They there was less salience of the arguments that Don, that that Ron DeSantis was making. Sure, could he have made them earlier and clearer? Absolutely. And I feel like the fact that the the. Um, so you think there's there's nothing? It was an unwinnable race from the beginning. No, I I I I don't think it was an unwinnable race. I just I I would agree that they pulled a lot of punches for a very long time. That's I don't think they were playing prevent defense. I mean, Ron DeSantis was engaged in this primary. I think there was an assumption though, with the weight of all of these indictments, that people would be like, I don't know. It seems like Donald Trump's probably a risk, and then would migrate to the most conservative candidate in the field, that being Ron DeSantis. That was ultimately the wrong calculation. Obviously, the indictments only strengthened Donald yeah. Trump. But I think the indictments also caused them to pull some punches because of the rallying effect within conservative media around Donald Trump that it, 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 would, it would seem a little gauche to go full bore on the guy mm-hmm. as he's taking on all this heat from you know, Democratic AGs and the liberal media and all of that sort of stuff. So they ended up weakening their own hand instead of pressing their advantage. And that, to Ashbrook's point, I think is... The fault of a campaign is like when you when you have blood in the water, like you have to exploit it. You you don't you don't pull punches and get rewarded for it. You just don't. Yeah. You, you knew that the indictments might come down at some point. There were all kinds of rumors about them early on in the year. And I mean, we, we need to move on to another topic. No, but, but I mean, like, but like is it, anybody but, in this room seriously saying that like when the indictments came down, you thought Donald Trump would get stronger from them? Because uh, that's an absurd thing. You wouldn't think that. But well, that, I mean, it, look, never you, before in American politics would we have a precedent where you have a nominee that has potentially jail time in front of them and serious indictments and that not be an issue, it's an asset. And, and, the, and the voters, <laughs> and the voters have said, these primary voters in poll after poll have said, not only is that not a problem for them, they think Donald Trump has the best chance of beating Joe Biden. Yeah. So there is a disconnect there. I guess what I'm, what I'm, what I'm, what yeah. I'm saying is so that it's if, difficult. If, if, you, if you wanted to defeat him that you should have ingrained in people's minds that he shut things down. You know that you've got a former president in turbulent water with a general electorate. Mm-hmm. That is a asset that you need to seize hold of and drive. And I know that they tried. And I know at one point that it was a central message not only to Ron DeSantis, but, but Nikki Haley's campaign as well, Chris Christie's and others. But you had this formal defense of Donald Trump in the public square that was happening within the context of a of a primary race. Mm-hmm. 
that you could never really go, that none of them ever really went whole hog. Yeah. I mean, Christie did, but he always also was in a situation where he was willing to alienate himself with more than half of the Republican Party to make a point that he thought people right. needed to know. The rest of them, they were playing to try to win overall. Mm -hmm. And they saw the polls and they saw people in defense of Donald Trump. And so they thought that that was a bad move. Again, they were, but they were playing n not to lose. Mm -hmm. They wanted to be a last man standing. And part of that calculus was if you get a mano a mano before Super Tuesday, you can do this. Right. That's the collective action problem we've talked about it previously on the show. It's like if everybody's sort of defending Donald Trump and you're the one who puts your head up, then you're a target. Right. right? Which, like, Back to the part of Ashbrook's argument that I wholeheartedly agree with about, like, you know, a campaign to define your opponent and press your advantage is like, imagine if this happened to one of Donald Trump's opponents, you yeah. know, getting in indicted. What do you think He's, Donald Trump would every say? Every day, every day. Oh, two indicted, systems of indicted, justice? Indicted. Two no, systems of no chance. justice? No, no chance. We got to rally no around Ron DeSantis He'd or Nikki Haley? He'd bury him. He'd, He'd bury him because he was playing to win. Different, he, it's a difference between a winner and a loser. It, I, it is. Look, I, I, think, I think all of that is right. But ultimately, what we saw with DeSantis is, as the window began to close is that they pushed all of their chips into Iowa, and they knew it. Mm -hmm. And they'd spent an enormous amount of resources there. They thought it gave them the best shot. They had the endorsement of an incredibly popular governor with Kim Reynolds. They had a massive amount of things going for them. Bob Vanderplatz. True. Right. Yeah. Right. And it came up snake eyes. Mm -hmm. I mean snake eyes. And, like, ultimately, if you'd have told me in January of 2022, 23, sorry, that Ron DeSantis would have effectively tied Nikki Haley in Iowa, I would have thought I had hit my head on a boulder. Mm -hmm. Right? The, I mean, right? Yeah. The worst, the worst possible place you can be in as a campaign is at, if at the very beginning of the campaign, everybody internally is saying, oh man, this is our opponent's vulnerability. It, we're, gonna, you know, we're gonna hit him on this. I can't believe anybody would vote for somebody if this is said about them. And then they say it over and over and over again throughout the course of the happens. campaign. Nothing happens. And then they complain that at the end of the campaign, they complain that you know, nobody really talked about this, mm -hmm. about our opponent. And that you, you, they're the only person that's responsible is the man in the mirror. It really is. If you, if if you're running, if you're putting your name on the ballot, you're putting your name on the line. You, there's a lot of risk that goes with that. And if you do it, you're accepting that I am going to have to start hitting and hitting hard. And I think, like, love him or hate him, this is something that Trump intrinsically understands in life. And this is something that he has brought over to politics that. He, he didn't grow up in politics, but it just so happens that the skill set he acquired in New York is one that actually works very, very well in politics. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, look, there's no question about it. I mean, I, one, one final thing I would say before we get on, I know we got to get onto the New Hampshire stuff and all of that is, you know, there's a lot of people on MAGA Twitter who are talking about how this is the end of Ron DeSantis and not, will never be heard of from again. It won't be. I mean, Ron DeSantis is an extremely talented politician, I think, with a very bright future in the Republican Party. It just wasn't his time. And that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, like, I mean, this, it, it, this happens all the time. And it may have been. You know, I mean, look, I, as a consultant, there is nothing worse than hearing the Monday morning quarterback on how you could have done things better, which is a little bit of what we're doing right now. But I think the reality is there was a different strategy to pursue. 
that may have not have won, but I think it would have gotten him hell of a lot closer than this than this did. And I will. It remains to be seen where it goes from here. You know, candidates change a lot after experiences like this. Look yeah. at Ted Cruz. Yeah, perfect example. Ted Cruz is a good example. Mitt Romney mm-hmm. is an example of a different direction, right? Uh, John McCain mm-hmm. was a good example of somebody who went a different direction after they lost a presidential race. Um, things change, and you learn things, and you change your... I'm hoping the Ron that you saw of the last 60 days of that campaign is the one that remains because I think he's got a very bright future in the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. I think that that guy can carry an awful lot of water for conservative principles around the country and could be a formidable 28 yeah, contender. I totally agree. Um, all right, so it brings us to New Hampshire, which is, you know, look, this is... This <laughs> and, and by the way, by the way, another guy, Ronald Reagan. Yeah, Ronald Reagan. He ran in 1976. It didn't work out. H.W. Bush. Right. Right? I mean, right. They, almost every president, Right. Uh, this has been the experience. Right. So, yeah, it, it does make some sense. In New Hampshire, I don't think that it, we ever could have imagined that the field as broad as it was at some point would essentially be a one-on-one race in the second contest. Yeah. And if we did, we certainly wouldn't have imagined that it was Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. Although that has become evident over the last 60 days. She's had a rise in the polls there. There are a couple of... You talk about this all the time, Smash. Polling is difficult in New Hampshire. It it is very difficult in New Hampshire. Anybody who's worked races in New Hampshire knows this. It's like you look at a poll and you're like, I think it's right. It's just something about the state of New Hampshire and the mindset of these voters. You You can have completely different polls on the exact same time frame that get a different result. Yeah. And it's just the way it's worked. We've worked a number of Senate races there. Uh, I think we have some graphics. Yeah, to wit, we have two polls that have come out here in the last week that show a very different reality about what you're going to see tonight. The first graphic one, what you're looking at here is a poll from the American Research Group. And this is between, uh, has DeSantis, Haley, and Trump. Uh, They had DeSantis... In the last matchup at 4%, in a 40-40 tie with Haley and Trump. Um, Again, this is, you know, sometime in the last week, looks like January 15th, um, was when this poll was was completed. But that would tell you, like, holy smokes, maybe tonight is going to have fireworks. Maybe this is a real deal. And then you look at graphic two. And this is the Monmouth poll that came out over the weekend. It's about four days later. Um, and a very different story. Yeah. 52-34, that's a blowout. Mm-hmm. Right? An 18-point win. And I think, you know, we all talk to the Trump people. We talk to the Haley people. We talk to everybody. And we endeavor to get you the best information here on the Variety program. And if you talk to the Trump people, they will say they see it as a competitive race, one that they're very confident in winning, but they think they're going to have to run through. I mean, they're all up there. Right. They're all up there. So it tells you that they're, they're, 
pushing. Right. They 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 acknowledge that Nikki's got a, a real shot at winning this race. And if you talk to the Haley campaign, they will tell you that their goal all along was to finish strong in Iowa, stronger in New Hampshire, and set up a scenario where they have an entire month to run in a state where they've won twice, South yeah. Carolina. Yeah. 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 But, the, I mean, the polls don't look anything like New Hampshire in, in South Carolina. And I know Tony Fabrizio... Um, you know, who's a, a Trump pollster, you know, polled in South Carolina. And, you know, it's a huge, huge lead for Donald Trump. I mean, that shouldn't be surprising. It's more like Iowa than it is New Hampshire. And New Hampshire, it's difficult to poll because um, it's it's an open primary. Uh, and the electorate's a lot different, obviously, than a caucus, which is a, you know, smaller universe of voters sure. in a more Republican state like like Iowa. So I think that's where you get some of these this broad variance in, in the polling. But, I mean, I agree, you know, the Trump people are taking it seriously. Obviously, Nikki Haley's people are taking it seriously. I, I would anticipate a, a win for Donald Trump. Um, you know, I, I noticed recently that, that Governor Sununu, who's behind uh, Nikki Haley in this, in this race, has sort of changed the rhetoric a little bit in yeah. that <clears throat> uh, to kind of lower expectations, as campaigns obviously do frequently. But, you know, he, he said, you know, strong second place finish is, a, is enough of a victory for the Haley campaign, which is, uh, it's telling. Yeah. It's, well, it's very, very different from what he said that they expect to win right. a few weeks earlier. Right. It, 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 it is telling, but you know, one of the other things Haley people will say is that only a hundred thousand people have voted in this election so far in Iowa. And uh, this is not a coronation. This is a competition to right. see who should be the person to run against Joe Biden. And, you know, as strong as Trump looks, that's a compelling argument. The whole, that's the whole point of the process it'll, is to make sure that we can defeat Joe Biden. Who I, think, sucks. I think it'll be a much more compelling argument for Nikki Haley to go on a whole nother month to South Carolina if she performs better in a lot of the suburban areas and the southern part of, of New Hampshire that are very voter rich. Yeah. Um, it, it, it would allow her campaign to make an argument of like how there would be a path to close a, a massive gap in her home state. Yeah. If, if that doesn't happen tonight, I think, frankly, that's a very hard argument to make, like I said, in a more conservative state like South Carolina. So the question I have about all of this, and I agree with all that analysis, and I think it's more likely than not that Donald Trump figures out how to win New Hampshire and go in with a whole boatload of steam into South Carolina, where, mm -hmm. he, as you said, he's got a, a, a polling advantage, and it's the, the state that he basically put away the 2016 nomination mm -hmm. in. But you wonder about how much of the uncertainty about Donald Trump is a factor in having no other Republicans in the race. Like, we never imagined it would go down to one other Republican in the race this early. But you wonder how much of a motivation it is for Nikki Haley to get out at all, considering you've got 91 indictments that are going to be litigated mm -hmm. at some point. It, now, yeah. I don't, do you, is that a factor, do you think? And there, I mean, how do you, typically the way that candidates look at it is if they don't have a path to the nomination and they've come to the reality that that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. That they pack it in and make an endorsement and walk away. Mm -hmm. uh, it generally means that they get a nice convention speaking spot. You know, it pads their landing. 
makes them sort of a national spokesperson for the Republican Party for the rest of the cycle and whatnot. But given all the uncertainty that we're dealing with, with age, with indictments, with all of that, uh, is there a risk within the Republican Party of having no other candidates? Does that have anything to do with this quote-unquote suspensions of campaigns? I don't know. I mean, it just seems like I always envisioned if Donald Trump was going to get in trouble in this election, it was going to be later in the process when something that he couldn't control came up that maybe changed somebody's point of view on whether they were going to ultimately just ride or die or whether they had real fear that they were going to lose to this geriatric in the White House. Mm -hmm. And if you have no other alternative, I mean, you actually have to invent a process. (laughs) If if something happened to Donald Trump, you'd have to invent a process to find another candidate. I mean, is this just like a wild... Is there any merit to this discussion? I know. I think there's a lot of merit to this discussion. And I think that um, what you're touching on is the fact that Nikki Haley, by being by virtue of being the last person in this race, has a lot more leverage than um, than people might realize, because what President Trump needs is a unified party heading into a general election that against a candidate who he lost to in 2020. Mm-hmm. He, he needs Nikki Haley in inside the tent. And I, I sort of thought that the last person standing was going to be Ron DeSantis, and you're going to have an Ivy League-educated attorney negotiating with Trump for some big thing. But he is, he is the last person standing happens to be a woman from South Carolina who was a governor, and she's, she's, she's a compelling candidate. Yeah. Uh, and I, I really think that she has more leverage in the process than anybody is willing to talk about because everybody's kind of like moving on already. The reality is she she's going to get a, a healthy portion of the Republican vote tonight in New Hampshire. Some people say, oh, well, it's just independents and it's Democrats coming to vote for Nikki Haley. That's a talking point. There are a lot of Republicans, suburban voters, who are going to choose Nikki Haley tonight because... They're these they're, they're these suburban voters who just aren't in love with Trump. Yeah. Or in, so I think anyhow I think there is merit to the topic. So so uh, back back to your sort of hypotheticals like is it just worth being around if um, for whatever reason? I mean, look if you're if you're hanging out with five delegates, right? That's five more than anybody else has. Yeah, in a situation where Donald Trump is in real legal peril or something, God forbid, it was were to happen that you'd be the landing spot for yeah for you know what comes after. I mean, I I, I can understand uh, that being a, attractive to a candidate, and maybe also the reason why Ron DeSantis suspended and did not end technically his campaign. I could see all that in the hypothetical, but like brass tacks, yeah, black pill, yeah. What would you want to be the nominee in a situation like that? <laughs> I mean, that's a decent. Well, no, no, I mean, no. Seriously, if if you if you look at the way that the Republican primary electorate views Donald Trump and these in, indictments and 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 whatnot, if our if our Republican primary voters are denied, who is their pick? Who is Donald Trump? How do you put the pieces back together? Well, I don't. I, I don't know. The only way you can do that is the opposition. I mean, there's no way that there's any candidate, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, or anybody else, yeah. who could cobble back together a Republican majority in that situation. 
but the prospect of a four more years of Joe Biden goes a long way to no, healing know, a I, lot of wounds. I know. I'm just. I, I, look, all of this is unprecedented territory. But like, I mean, imagine how demoralized the Republican base would be in a situation like that. Totally, totally. Yeah, no. But I think it's a demoralized. I mean, look, we're we're long past demoralization. <laughs> Right. I mean, you're, you've got a guy who literally we, can't. We haven't a, even come close. <laughs> Just you wait. <laughs> I mean, we've talked a lot about all the bad things that can happen over the last few years, and it feels like almost every one of them have come true. So you just don't know. And, and I, who knows? A big part of what we're going to talk about here going forward, uh, Vice President, the uh, former president showed a little leg on that. We've got Joe Biden, who's uh, apparently trying to do Middle Eastern peace deals. Mm. And you'll be ecstatic to hear how he's about to do that. Uh, we, ancient uh, zombie viruses yeah. in the Arctic. Mm. I have a lot to say on this. Okay. You'd be shocked. All right, good. And then I, I think it, it there's been some interesting refereeing mm. in the NFL. And it, uh, we saw some soccer uh, highlights that I know you're going to be okay. eager to weigh in on <laughs> okay. that may give us some idea of how we go about doing that. want to thank everybody for subscribing to the YouTube. It's awesome. Uh, the store is up. Have you been knitting lately and, and sewing and, and putting things together for the for the people? I'm a little behind on my work, to be quite honest. Are you? Um, but the weather's been really cold, so hopefully I can get a nice cup of cocoa and a roaring fire and Start fulfilling all of your orders. <laughs> That's very kind of you, old man. It's always thoughtful. All right, so let's start with the VP stuff. Um, look, Trump is the best showman when it comes to this stuff. He's so good at it. And it's amazing to me that after eight years on the national stage, how many like serious reporters still try to glean things from what he says. Mm -hmm. And it's like... Uh, it's a show. I, 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 I get the temptation, though, because you do never know what he's going to say. You know, so you got to try, right? Yeah, you got to try. But it, let's play a clip to start off with. Wolf, if we can't cue up the uh, latest commentary from President Trump on the VP selection. You said in our town hall that you had an idea or you might have already decided about your VP pick. When do you think you're going to make that? Well, it's never really had that much of an effect on... An election, which is an amazing thing. Both election and primary, it's never really had much of an effect. I may or may not release something uh, over the next couple of months. There's no rush to that. It won't have any impact at all. The person that I think I like is a very good person, a pretty standard. I think people won't be that surprised. But I would say there's probably a 25% chance it would be that person. You know, traditionally, uh, presidential candidates find somebody who's going to balance them out in some way regionally, um, thematically, something. Policy-wise. Yeah. Right. I, I Trump is such a unique individual in American politics. I'm not sure I'm not sure he needs the traditional VP in the way that, that somebody else does. And so I think that he's looking for someone a little bit different. Um, and there is someone who sort of sticks out in my mind. I, there's someone who I've been predicting since the beginning, and then there's somebody else who sort of sticks out in my mind that would be good. Um, first of all, I think Elise Stefanik, uh, a lot of people have talked about her as a, as a possible pick. She, of course, made headlines over and over and over again with her uh, grilling of these woke uh, uh, 
college president. And she's been a staunch Trump supporter. She has. And I think that she, I, I think she would be a, a, a good choice in the traditional sense that she balances them out. You got a female vote or a female voice who can talk about a lot of issues in a way that, that Trump just can't. I think Tim Scott would be a great pick. He's got great relationships in the Senate. Very, very well liked. He's the guy that I've sort of thought from the very beginning that Donald Trump will probably go with. My pick that I, who I think that Trump should choose, should, he's just going to take them all. I'm going to take them he's all. Just okay. get, and then you, you provide your thoughts afterwards, okay. Doug, and after right. he's run through the entire Republican okay. roster. I'll just say, I'm just going to say the name, and then you can start talking. <laughs> Doug Burgum. <laughs> I love Doug Burgum. Okay. Go ahead. The, ge- the gen- gentleman from Ohio has ended his filibuster. Now I think we're down to like uh, Mike Crapo and John Cornyn. <laughs> <laughs> all, all, all kidding aside, I think that was very well reasoned. I think two things from that clip uh, of, of Trump, I would say, uh, off the top here. Uh, number one, he, I, I, can, I can clearly tell like he doesn't like the Veep stakes at all because... He not about gonna, him. Yeah, right. He he's the candidate for president. He even sort of just like well, he said it's not. Yeah, you know, these things matter very little. Very little. But I know right. you're interested in. But then he also, I think, very smartly. Donald Trump's a smart guy, and he understands leverage. Is he, he's going to leave this process open and let people deliberate and speculate, um, and then he's going to sit back and watch, and he's going to watch as long as he would like to watch. See who will um, defend. Yeah, to and, the end. And look, especially as some of these legal cases heat up, if they do heat up. Uh, be certainly nice to have a lot of people who want to be your vice president on cable news every night defending you. Yeah, he knows. Mm-hmm. So he's not going to throw away all of that leverage and and and, and you know quickly announce who his vice presidential candidate is. He's going to have an audition. This is a guy who's lived in show business. Mm-hmm. It's time for auditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. Excellent point. To your Burgum point, there was a piece in the Hill uh, over the weekend about how he comes across as the adult in the room basically mm-hmm. that is, this is a successful guy obviously in business who's run North Dakota well he acquitted himself very well it beat expectations in terms of how he did in the presidential race he immediately endorsed Donald Trump he was with him in Iowa and then he was on him on the plane and flew with him to New Hampshire mm-hmm. so yeah I mean I think that that is a, a real thing and I think is Doug Burgum the 24 sort of version of Mike Pence. You could see that. Burgum's a business guy at his, at his core. He brought his business sense that he developed on his own with a company he built on his own, and he took it to government. And Trump understands that. He does. Now, you wonder a lot about the central casting bit in terms of Trump wanting to diversify the ticket. Yeah. And you, it, he's not above that. I know, like, in Republican politics, that's, like, heretical speak. But it is true in terms of how Donald Trump looks at things. Mm-hmm. And he's certainly made it very clear in private conversations that we've been made privy to that he's looking at women. He's looking at, uh, you know, people of color, things like that, where you would have a different presentation than the one that he has himself and perhaps bring in demographics he doesn't have access to just by virtue of the appointment. I mean, ultimately... He's not going to want anybody who has the chance of overshadowing him, for starters. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that exists anyway. Otherwise, we'd have a very different I think Republican right. primary. You're, you're, it, it, right. Right? But they don't want, he doesn't want somebody with their own agenda. Let's mm-hmm. just put it that way. Because uh, he's, he's really running the show here and in a way that he 
maybe even wasn't in 2016. I mean, mm-hmm. he's he kind of knows what he wants to do. And so, like, does a Burgum fit the mold there? I mean, a lot of ideological capacity there, a lot of, like, interesting, as you said, business background. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's cer- certainly somebody who doesn't fit the sort of quote-unquote diversity of the ticket, but certainly would be a decent match for somebody like Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. No question about that. Mm-hmm. One person he did say, we can play the clip of this, is uh, Nikki Haley. Apparently she's not in the running for this. She was not, she is not presidential timber. Now, when I say that, that probably means that she's not going to be chosen as a vice president. You, you know, you can go... No, you can go, you can go, and you can say certain things, you know, I don't like them, and blah, 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 and this. But when you say certain things, it sort of takes them out of play, right? I can't say, she's not of the timber to be a vice, and then say, ladies and gentlemen, I'm proud to announce that I've picked. Do you understand? But that's the way it is, okay? Um, so, I mean, look, uh, not surprisingly, he's not going to give her any benefit for the doubt. He's still locked in a head-to-head race. Yeah, I mean nobody, nobody in the right mind would be like, yeah, they'd be, be a great vice president. I mean, he's not gonna <laughs> well qualified. Now vote for me. <laughs> yeah, in right. New Hampshire. Right. No, I, I mean, look, I, I, I think that's predictable. But um, I think I have to agree with Ashbrook. I think, I think Tim Scott ultimately provides the compliments that Donald Trump's looking for. He raised a ton of money. Yeah. Right? So he's he's you know plugged into a donor community that Donald Trump is going to need in this general election and he provides some diversity on the ticket african-american males are you know not they don't want joe biden as president right and having tim scott on the ticket could certainly help with that he also provides provides this sunny optimism of the republican party that donald trump doesn't really have as much of so i i think for all of those reasons he'd be my my pick as well great relationships on the hill yeah also a full-throated endorsement yeah, which I think a lot of people who initially supported Tim Scott never thought. <laughs> and, t- and Tim Scott just gotten—he uh, just got engaged. Just got engaged. Yeah, just got engaged. A happily engaged individual. Yeah, he can't be up there accepting the nomination alone. You know, <laughs> exactly. That, would, that wouldn't be—that wouldn't be central casting. It to quote Donald Trump, it would not be central casting. Yeah, but I mean, a full-throated endorsement. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, look—that's the one thing Trump has been in their campaign has been really good at this is following on closing the door, each door behind them mm-hmm. with each one of these candidates that's dropping out, whether it's Ramaswamy, DeSantis, Tim Scott. You know, I mean, they're closing the door and getting the endorsements behind. They're obviously not going to get a Pence or a Christie endorsement. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, it feels like they've consolidated a lot of things behind them. Yeah. I mean, you, know, you guys make fun of me. I know you all agree with it. <laughs> This campaign is incredibly professional. They're doing all the things that every campaign should do. And someday, I, ho- I hope somebody's recording this down in a book so that they can write it and then operatives in the future can read it and they can learn how you're supposed to do the job. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's a lot to that. Uh, so meanwhile, on the other side of the house here, as we're dealing with uh, Democrats and this Biden administration, uh, they now it's now occurred to them three years in after a horrible terrorist attack and chaos in the Mideast where you've got Houthis uh, slinging missiles at American ships mm-hmm. and 
whatnot almost every day that now is the time that they are going to be providing peace in the Middle East. Mm. And they have, they have uh, well, the president, let's just hear from him about how he intends to do that. Mr. President, is a two-state solution impossible if Bibi's in power? If Bibi's in power? Are you going to reconsider conditions on Israel aid, given what Netanyahu said about a one-state? I think we'll be able to work something out. What does that mean? There are a number of types of two-state solutions. There's a number of countries that are members of the UN that are still don't have their own militaries. A number of states that have limitations. And so I think there's ways in which this could work. But Bibi has said he's opposed to any two, no, two-state no, solutions. So what is he open to? I'll let you know. Did you talk about it this morning? Well, I got a lot of confidence, fellas. I don't know about you. That sounds like a guy's got it all figured out. <laughs> yeah. The hell's he talking about? Yeah, right. he doesn't even know. He doesn't know. And 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 look, October seventh happened, and you know the the Middle East is on fire. I think the idea that now is the time to press for a Palestinian state is crazy. Because where, where exactly is your partner for peace? With Hamas? Is that where it is? The people that have the hostages? The, the, I mean, what a, sick, what a sick reward would that be for yeah. these people that massacred people on October 7th, that their reward for all of that murder and the rapings is um, a state. Well, a state. Now, now we're going to intervene on your right. behalf. Right. You, yeah, yeah, bring them to the United Nations. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. We all know why he's doing this, and it has nothing to do with an actual outcome for peace in the Middle East. It has everything to do with a division within his party as he's heading into re-election. Exactly right. right. And you have said it over and over again, Holmes, that Hamas is now a constituent of the Democratic Party in this country, and so he has to placate them and pretend like their talking point for a two-state solution is actually their objective. Right. Yeah. Pretend like from the river to the sea was a sentence never uttered by these terrorists who want to wipe out every Jew in that region. And I think that it's, an, it's a testament to his weakness. So listen to this. So this is from Axios. It's behind the curtain, Biden's Middle East moonshot. It feels like it's a lot of moonshots and none yeah, of them have actually no, landed. Yeah. No, uh, cancer. He was supposed to cure cancer. Yeah, I, I, I think that's still a problem. Um, <laughs> President Biden plans to keep pushing a grand bargain in the Middle East for the days after the war in Gaza with the hope it could happen before the election. There's the key. Mm, yep. There's the key. Despite Israel's opposition, U.S. officials tells, tell us. The plan, Israel gets normalized relations with Saudi Arabia in exchange for agreeing to an irreversible pathway to a Palestinian state and allowing the Palestinian Authority to have a role in post-Hamas Gaza. All right, let me pause you on this. Part of the reason that Hamas attacked, when they attacked, is because of the progress of the Abraham Accords in the region— and what was soon to be, building on that success, normalized relations with Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. This is not something that they've come up with. This is not something that the, the Biden administration is like, well, this would be good leverage. <laughs> this is something that right. was going to happen, and Hamas headed off at the pass by 
committing atrocities mm-hmm. upon the Israeli people. Yeah. That is what, ha- that, those are the facts. Yeah. Israel, you get what you already were going to have, and these terrorists get a state. That's, it, hey, that's, the, that's the plan. Th- this is the plan. <laughs> so here's the next. Uh, my, st- my staff is asking for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My staff is protesting for it. This isn't a way to end the war. It's more aimed at setting up what comes after it. This is according to this, this piece in Axios. The administration, including Secretary of State Tony Blinken, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, used comments in Davos, Switzerland this past week to lay down its thinking more clearly than ever in an effort to push world opinion. Fucking nonsense. Mm -hmm. They don't have a clue. If they did, they certainly wouldn't wait until after atrocities in year three of an administration to address a problem that they're thinking clearly about. Mm -hmm. Biden is growing increasingly frustrated with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Pause. Remember that Joe Biden was the vice president when Barack Obama and our patriotic friend here was in Israel working on behalf of Benjamin Netanyahu himself when the Obama administration sent all their political operatives over to Israel to try to defeat him in an election. Yeah. I mean, all of these people worked for a super PAC with its goal of dethroning Benjamin Netanyahu. It's not that the Gaza thing has created a rift here or the response to Hamas has created the rift. The rift has existed between Benjamin Netanyahu's realistic worldview when it comes to Israel's security and Obama and Biden and their worldview in terms of capitulating to terrorism whose whose money did they use to fund that effort to defeat you know it's Netanyahu? so it's so interesting you say that there's this wonderful report um that the uh, the senate joint committee on investigations put out about how your taxpayer dollars through the state department funded the entire operation from the obama administration hmm. that, interesting that they were using american taxpayer dollars to set up a vote drive it sounds a little bit like the dark money network that we've seen now through arabella advisors being deployed in this country where they got that. I wonder where they got that idea but they ran these nonprofits in israel to do voter registration that they then laundered over to a super PAC that hired a bunch of obama political operatives to try to beat netanyahu in the election and oh. now all these years later all these years later now we have president joe biden a little frustrated with Netanyahu. I was a little frustrated. And it oh. turns out all of these people are the same fucking people yeah. that we've dealt with for years. Right. right. Tony Blinken. Yeah. I mean, like, it just, it, it blows my mind. So, so on uh, with all of this, uh, he's very frustrated with Bibi. So U.S. officials are working with and around Bibi on a grand bargain to eventually stabilize the region. None of this is in quotes, by the way. That's that's just a, a, a news bullet, <laughs> yeah, by the way. Are you kidding no, me? No, no, that's, that's... That's in their own voice? Yeah, no, in their own voice is a grand bargain to eventually stabilize the region. That's, mm. in, their, that's in their own voice. There's no such thing as an editor anymore. <laughs> there, really is, there really isn't. There... It's going gonna, it's gonna to do that. Uh, they believe Gaza needs to be run by a, this is in quotes, revitalized Palestinian authority, mm. unquote. Uh, like the one that the people of Gaza voted out in favor of Hamas, apparently. Right. Anyway, uh, democracy be damned. Uh, and that a new formal Israel-Saudi alliance could help stabilize the surrounding environment. Again, not new. 
something that like Jared Kushner and Mike Pompeo put in the works with Abraham Accords and what was to follow. Right. These are these are these are things that were going to happen and were in the process of happening. Mm-hmm. And now they're acting as though they've just thought, just now, that they are going to go and speak to Saudi Arabia. And maybe you can use that as leverage against Hamas. When the reason, at least in part, for the attack itself was because this was about to happen. Right. It's an amazing, 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 amazing. thing <laughs> if you think about it. it. Is. Right. Biden spoke to Netanyahu on Friday for the first time in 27 days after the call. Biden said he doesn't think a two-state solution is impossible Mm. while Netanyahu is is in power and stressed that Netanyahu didn't tell him in the call that he opposed any two-state solution. He said it publicly Mm. like 50 times before (laughs) and after, but maybe not on the call. Yeah. Uh, the very next day, Netanyahu rebuffed Biden with a statement stressing that he told the president that after destroying Hamas, Israel must uh, have full security over Gaza, a requirement that contradicts a demand for Palestinian sovereignty, as uh, the Biden administration put it. Anyway, the point is, is like, look, whatever you think about the Trump administration, they had this shit handled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They like Kushner, Pompeo and others. We're all over this thing in a preemptive way where they had put people on a path to what they're calling normalization around the terrorists, knowing that the terrorists, they'd be done to them what they did to ISIS. These guys have no stick whatsoever. It's all carrot. And they're trying to like put out the old success as new ideas Mm -hmm. that they've just sort of come up with in order to mitigate all this ugliness that's going on around the world. <laughs> clown car, dude. Yeah. Absolute clown car. I can't think of anyone less equipped to deal with chaos around the world than this particular administration. Well said. It is just so bad. Well, if you got more good news. Mm-hmm. Want more good news? So there's a story in the Post, New York Post, about ancient zombie viruses trapped in the Arctic ice that could unleash a deadly new pandemic. They call it a tangible threat. Uh, let me Wait. just read a couple of these uh, things so you get I'm a flavor. I'm eager to hear this. Uh, the melting Arctic permafrost, and this is, again, I feel it's like a climate change oh, argument. Well, yeah, yeah. No, Here right. we go. Right. The melting Arctic permafrost. They, they were like, well, we can't, we didn't scare them into electric vehicles, so fuck, we got to go. Like, what are they scared of? Another pandemic? Oh, let's try it. Let's give that a shot. An Arctic Permafrost could unleash ancient zombie viruses and trigger a catastrophic global health emergency, concerned scientists say. Mm -hmm. We now face a tangible threat and we need to be prepared to deal with it. It is as simple as that, geneticist Jean-Michel Claverier, (laughs) professor emeritus, (laughs) medicine and genomics at Aix-Marcel University, told The Guardian. Experts are already working with the University of the Arctic. I didn't even know we had a university Well, I, it's a very difficult <laughs> place to get into, mostly because you can't find travel. <laughs> very difficult. Very difficult. You wouldn't believe the admission standards of the University of the Arctic, yeah. by the way. Very, very tough. An international education and research, research mm-hmm. cooperative. A research cooperative. I mean, it's important you have those kind of cooperatives. Mm-hmm. 
uh, on establishing uh, and monitoring a network to help identify these cases of diseases caused by ancient microorganisms early on before their spread can spiral out of control. The network could also provide quarantine facilities and medical services for those infected to help minimize potential outbreak, including preventing uh, contagious patients from leaving the region. Okay. I'm sure this is something somebody should worry about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, like, I, first of all, I, I, first comment is uh, New York Post, great job of headline writing, is saying zombie virus, not like dormant virus or a, a, ancient virus, yeah. you know, trapped in ice. Zombie virus. Because you're going to get people's attention with something like sure. that. Sure. And I understand the argument that if these viruses did get out, we would have no natural immunity to them because they, you know, they've been along, around probably before human beings or whatever, whatever the argument is. But you know what this is at the end of the day is just global warming scare tactic. It is, isn't you it? Know. I mean, it boils down to that. They're like, oh, all this stuff's melting. Yeah. So when it melts, right. we're going to get the COVID 8.0. I think my backyard is permafrost at this point. <laughs> We have had like 10 days in a row where it's been below 32 degrees in, in the D.C. area. In this area, you don't get that a lot. Yeah. You don't get that a lot. But What, what sticks out to me is Jean-Michel Clavier. <laughs> we now face a tangible threat. Ha- haven't the climate people been telling us that we face a tangible threat? For well, they said life years? was going to be over by 2028. Right. right. I, I right. just don't understand how the permafrost is now defrosting because right, i was told global cooling was going to happen before yes and and uh, maybe that added a couple layers before the global warming showed up yeah <laughs> and then don't forget about the acid rain well, which is also right, a big portion right. of of the you can acid the permafrost well i'm just glad that we got the global cooling first so maybe we've built up a cushion of permafrost <laughs> to keep the zombie viruses at bay <laughs> the zombie vi- i don't know Maybe we should just check in on China to see whether or not they're manufacturing another global pandemic. Yeah. Maybe that should be the, the focus of Jean-Pierre motherfuck. <laughs> you know, like, what? Why? This is, doesn't seem that difficult to me. Right. Yeah. The only problem that we've had, like significant problem that we've had over the last hundred years is one that was made in a lab in Wuhan. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's stop doing that part. Right. Yeah. Right. Science for publicity is getting a little bit old. Oh, man. God, that's just... Oh, yeah, yeah. So, old man, I know this was a... Uh, this is a topic near and dear to your heart. Um, I know you watched a lot of football over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And um, I did, too. And there was... It, it. This year, in particular, seems like there's been a lot of bad officiating. Yeah, it's been bonkers. Bonkers. Crazy. Stuff, right? Crazy. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I can't really tell if it's just we have better cameras and more angles and things. But like, whatever it is, there's at least two or three calls a game that are truly atrocious. Right. And so it makes you wonder, like, how do you innovate out of that? Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out, it's according to the Associated Press, mm-hmm. a reputable organization, a soccer fan plucked from the crowd to officiate an FA Cup match. Uh, couldn't cheer when his team was uh, scored. So he was there to root on the team. Uh, And I'll give you a little explanation. A fan of the English soccer club, Wolverhampton, was unable to celebrate his team's late winner in an FA Cup replay because he'd been plucked from the crowd to stand in 
hmm. as a match official. Can you imagine? That'd be a dream. <laughs> Ross Bennett attended the Wolves-Brentford game on uh, Tuesday with his 11-year-old son and volunteered to fill in as a fourth official in the technical area near the dugouts following an injury to one of the assistant referees in extra time. Yeah. Uh, Bennett, a qualified referee at the youth level. Okay, so he's got some some background. Uh, said he was given a crash course on how to work a uh, substitutes board and dealt with questions from members of the Brentford staff in a tense end to the match at Molyneux. First, this soccer, how many, how many rules, like, well, yeah, but he's just working the substitution board, you know, the big board that's like number eight comes out. And there's like one dude comes that in. comes in yeah, like every 90 minutes. I got to be honest. If they said, hey, man, you can come in and referee and they gave me this job, I'd be very disappointed. Because <laughs> this is like the intern of the of the referees. And like know? in soccer, does that mean you, you have to check the like jock straps and stuff? Or <laughs> no. you, is that is that is that the way that works? Well, no, I'm not gonna dignify that with a response. <laughs> but what I am going to say, this is would be the equivalent. This would be the equivalent in the NFL if they're like, hey, we don't have enough chains? refs. Like yeah, you're on the chains. <laughs> you're on the chains. You're like you're the guy holding the sticks. You're the guy holding the stick. So, and it, all of a sudden, he needed to throw his partisanship aside because uh, he's holding the sticks equivalent. Yeah, I mean, that's nice. He's putting the numbers up. Yeah, he's not in there pulling red cards. How do they, how do they, I mean, a, a good question. It's not uh, fully explored in this piece. It's like, how do you, how do you come to the conclusion this is our man? And you're like, hey, we need another ref. Well, I mean, he had some some experience. Youth experience. Uh, Youth-level experience. Which is where soccer belongs, by the way. Okay. In the youth. It's the most popular sport in the entire world. It's very good for Everybody children under, under the World 12. Cup. Okay. I mean, women, too. And, uh, like, women sports, for I, sure. I Maybe in perpetuity. I just want you to know, because you're digging your own grave on this, <laughs> is every time I go over to your house for one of your kids' birthday parties... They're getting a soccer ball. And then, and then when they have enough soccer balls, they're getting soccer cleats. And then when they have enough of those, they're getting Cristiano Ronaldo jerseys. And I'm going to convert them. <laughs> like ISIS converted those people to, to, to move over to become terrorists. I'm going to convince your sons to be soccer fans. Well, I will do my part on the other side with your two boys and bring them Playboys. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, can we do this? Do you think you could do an uh, like if they threw you in an NFL game? Do you think you could, you could make it work? One hundred percent. I think at least as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could definitely get the first downs correct. I mean, it doesn't. That's the thing that drives me the most crazy about this year in the NFL is that like the spots terrible. And then and there, there's t- there's times where it's clearly short by a chain and a half, and they're like <laughs> first down, and we can all see it on 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 camera. And back to your earlier point, Holmes. I do think part of it is we have cameras on every single angle of this thing, and you also have fan bases now that are entirely plugged in on social media at all times yeah. that are checking, and they didn't have that before. Right. You know, so so we're more aware of all of these things. We are. It's just sort of like in baseball where you know you got a strike zone. And, and if it's umps, outside the square. Ump's doing the best job he, he can, but there's like three or four pitches you know, every game where it's like, how did he miss that, right? Yeah. And everybody notices now because they see that strike zone, and they've got Twitter up on their phone, and so... You know, it's it's uh, it's tough. It's tough. I, I get it. It's tough. But I just think, like, some of this is ridiculous. Completely like, ridiculous. That we still have a chain and two sticks, and we're like, we think this is a this is a first down in a, you know, $100 billion industry. <laughs> well, I just get, that's the thing that I just, I literally can't process. Yeah. 
about how you you watch a tennis match yeah and a ball is electronically monitored exactly where it lands and like nobody watches t- i mean not nobody I, I watch tennis but like in comparison to football a very different yeah level of sport mm-hmm. but also i would say and you kind of played yourself on this one because you would have to admit the greatest implementation of technology and rules has been soccer with offsides that they can zoom in and change the angle and see when someone's hand is across that fictional line they can that it, designates offsides i will give them that it's we could quite do impressive. that we could do that in in football tomorrow if we in wanted the to. off chance that there is a scoring opportunity in <laughs> soccer they will have all they'll be all over it yeah they'll be all over it hey, i watched a lot of minnesota vikings games i saw a lot of games with not a lot of score it's <laughs> just unbelievable colts didn't make it either you bastard <laughs> i love it all right so uh you want some animal news of course so, um, look, I've seen some shit, mm-hmm. and and I, I spent a, a lot of my summers as a kid up in the northern parts of Canada, mm-hmm. where I saw these massive eagles, yeah, like ripping fish out of the water. People don't understand how large they are. They don't. They don't. And like you know, we, I was up in places where it's very remote. Eagles are not afraid of you, and like you know, you catch something that's a, uh, you know, not particularly big not like a it's like a perch or something you're not going to keep anything like that and you set it if it doesn't go down immediately an eagle comes and grabs it like right next to your boat and the size of these things you're like holy shit yeah like that is a big bird and they're majestic a majestic no wonder they're our national symbol exactly as well they should be and it is a crying shame that the philadelphia fan base (laughs) has perverted the name (laughs) and turned them green because they are not either of those things. Anyway, I saw this video on Twitter that we just we had to show. Uh, can we get a look at this? That that is a an eagle carrying. I mean, they say in this in this piece that that it's a deer. It, it, it may be like an antelope or something. Spaghetti, is that right? It's an antelope. Maybe baby antelope. But Whatever it is, it's a full-size thing. Yeah. I mean, that's got to be at least 150 pounds. Yeah, it's incredible. And not, not just carrying it, but soaring majestically. I mean, just soaring with wings out, yeah. just dangling this thing. Yeah. They're practicing, right? I mean, they're coming for us. Yeah, I mean... Uh... They've, the, if you just look at the talons, if you ever seen one of these eagles sort of just like scooting along on the ground, those things are massive, massive. It's like mini cranes, and their and their claws, yeah. are they're almost like uh, construction. Yeah, yeah, like an excavator. The excavators situation. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, they're it's vice like grip, clearly as demonstrated in that clip. Yeah. Um, what if you're the eagle? You know, what's your what's your next? game there do you think it's like get up as high as you can and drop them on a bunch of rocks and then soar down and there's dinner do you think that's it <laughs> is that the thing i mean you have to think well maybe they just go <coughs> just go down and pack them i don't I, know i mean you would have to because if you're carrying something that large drop I, them on some rocks i'm just saying you like you're you, i think immediately your range is far reduced when you're carrying that amount of weight yeah. you know so uh, I mean I did so when we were up in Canada when I was a kid uh, we had a neighbor who had a Scottish terrier 
Oh, gosh. And that thing would run around and every once in a while oh, you'd no. see mom run out and like scurry it back in because they were afraid if it was like running out in the open that that thing was like bait. Well, yeah, but if you take a little terrier, you got no problem getting back to the nest. If you're carrying something <laughs> like that small antelope, you're That's overweight. Not going in a nest. No, no, no. You got to drop that in the rocks and you got to eat your meal right there. Because <laughs> if that antelope starts struggling as you're mid flight, you're both going down. <laughs> It doesn't look like it's doing a lot of struggling. Right, <laughs> it looks like that thing has been, somehow it's been taken care it's of. It's been taken care Maybe of. Maybe he gave it a pre-drop before, oh, yeah. before we saw this because it's, that thing's hanging high right now. I mean, that, that's not, that is. Soaring majestically. It's soaring, but look at the wingspan on that. Massive. Huh? Well, yeah, you would need to, to maintain lift while you're carrying that much weight. That's just simple physics. Yet, yet again, the threats don't just come from the land and the sea. No, keep your head on a swivel and look above you. They come from the sky as, as well. we As we learned from the hawk that had the snake that dropped it on the woman's head. Oh, my God, that's right. Yeah, they're working in tandem. That is exactly right. Well, I think we've done it, old man. I think uh, a big night tonight, everybody's going to... Uh, Await with bated breath what the results of the New Hampshire primary on, what that means, whether Nikki Haley is in her home state of South Carolina, what that means for Super Tuesday and beyond, or whether the Republican Party is basically running a general election. Who knows? But we find out tonight. Thanks for joining us on the Ruthless Variety program. Let's throw it to Henneberg. I huh? think we have to. Yeah. Another banger of an episode, folks. So until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. Stay ruthless.